welcome to another podcast. This is Micah Zinko, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Joining me today is Michael A. Cohen, a columnist for the Boston Globe on politics and foreign affairs. Previous life, he was a speechwriter at the State Department, and he taught aspiring graduate students how to write clear at Columbia University. You can find his publications by simply following him at Twitter at SpeechBoy71, that's at SpeechBoy71. Most recently, Michael has written an excellent book, American Maelstrom, the 1968 election and the politics of division. It's out right now with Oxford University Press. I would say rarely has a book of history based upon interviews and archival research been better time to speak to current events. Literally, if you ordered the book today, which I highly recommend, you would recognize the echoes from a half century ago into this contemporary presidential campaign. Again, an excellent book, American Maelstrom. I recommend you check it out. Michael, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Great to be here. So tell us first, why did you decide to focus on the 1968 presidential campaign? You know, it was one of these things where I was working I was working on a project, and I sort of began doing some, some research on 68, and I was just struck by, first of all, what an extraordinary election this is. As a history buff, there's just so many extraordinary events that happened this year, right. you know, from the Tet Offensive to Johnson dropping out to the assassinations of MLK and, and Bobby Kennedy to the riots in Chicago. But what I was struck by was just that this felt like this a, a pivot point in American politics, mm-hmm. and one that we were still living in today. I, I think I first got this idea about 10 years ago. And I was struck by how then it felt like the themes from 68, the ideas, the images of the two parties really had, had sort of crystallized on this campaign and still defined modern American politics. And now with the book out, it feels even more true than ever that we're still sort of caught up in this, in this maelstrom of 68 and it still sort of d- defines our, our politics. Right. And, and one of the uh, critical pivot points you mentioned is March 31st, 1968. LBJ comes out to the surprise of many and decides he's not going to run again. He has right. declining approval ratings and antagonism against Vietnam and the perceptions of quagmire are, are taking hold in public media. But he still is the favorite to win mm. if he decides to run again. Why does he not run and what does that set off? So <laughs> the thing about Johnson, he's such a complex figure. It's hard to ever tell what his motivations are at any given point. The thing that happens for Johnson and the precipitating event is two weeks earlier, Gene McCarthy, who's a senator from Minnesota, who announces running against Johnson in the fall over the war in Vietnam, almost beats him in the New Hampshire primary, mm-hmm. gets around 42, 43 percent of the vote. This is a, a shocking result, you know, and it, it shows Johnson's weakness with his own party. But of course, the impact on the race, even more so, is it brings Bobby Kennedy, who had been, who had been sitting out the race into the race to challenge Johnson. And of course, Bobby Kennedy is, is the brother of, of Jack Kennedy, the man who Johnson replaced as president in 63. So the combination of McCarthy and Kennedy challenging Johnson, it, it's interesting because initially, I think Johnson's reaction is to want to fight harder because he because he hates Bobby Kennedy and doesn't mm-hmm. want to see Kennedy get the nomination. But um, about a week after Kennedy announces, Johnson meets with his reform policy wise men who basically tell him, look, it's time to get out of Vietnam. It's time to de-escalate. And these are the people, Gene Acheson, among others, who are the architects of the post-war, Cold War American foreign policy, which was based always on, certainly in the 50s and 60s, based on aggressively confronting communism around the world. And so the idea that these these folks are going to say it's time to, to basically you know, cut bait in, in Vietnam, I think was for Johnson the final straw. Johnson, as you point out in the book, like made the, said he want, didn't want to be an American president to lose a war. Right. So he can double down with troops, he can provide more assistance, but his, his even some of the military leadership is finally saying this may not do the job, this may not succeed. Right. In the fall, he met with the wise men. In November, who basically told him that you needed to stay the course on Vietnam and not shift policy. 
And that was the point I, that I say I argue in the book that Johnson, I think, should have recognized that the war was hurting him politically, hurting mm-hmm. the country, and he needed to, to begin to find a way to de-escalate and bring, bring American troops home. He didn't do it, and he was forced to do it in March. But I, I think the wise men meeting was sort of the final straw for Johnson. But again, I mean, it's, it's impossible to, to say there's one moment that did it. In the end, with Johnson, it's usually a combination of forces. And I think ultimately he just he didn't have it in him. And it's, you know, I, I, I'm not too sympathetic to Johnson, but it's also, it seems worthy of note that, that he had in the past year undergone more vitriolic attacks against him, both from, from the left and from the right, especially from the left, over the war, where I think, you know, he, he, he reached a point of a sort of mental breakdown to some extent. And mm-hmm. I think that he should not have run for another term, and he probably wouldn't have been, he, he may have won, but it would have been very bad for the country if he had another term as president. Just prognosticating, like, if he had won, what would he have done in Vietnam? <laughs> I, who knows? I mean, I, I tend to think it's such a hard question to answer because, you know, he did in that speech in March, he does say to the country, you know, it's time to de-escalate, de-Americanize the war, but he doesn't really do it. I mean, right. the, the, the spring of 68 ends up being the bloodiest period of the entire war. And ultimately, he gets a deal with the, with the North Vietnamese to begin peace talks and to a bombing halt. This is in October of 68. But he tries to wring every possible concession he can out of the North Vietnamese, mm-hmm. every possible concession. So I, I don't get the sense he would have been the most um, pliant or the most flexible uh, negotiator. So I, I don't know that the war would have winded down the way it did under Nixon. Um, it's just impossible to say. I think certainly, you know, the one thing you'll say about Johnson is politically, for a variety of reasons, he convinced himself that he couldn't mm-hmm. afford to change course on Vietnam. He convinced himself that the the response from the right and from the conservatives and, and the response for losing in, in Vietnam would undermine his entire domestic agenda. By, by 68, it already undermined his domestic agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, and he still couldn't do it. I, and I think by that point, pride and, and ego began to dominate his thinking. So who knows with Johnson? It's a hard question to answer. But I do think that it was probably better for the country he did not run again in right. 68. One of the echoes from that election to today has to do with the transitions of political liberalism, centrism, and conservatism. And one of the most interesting divisions you talk about in the book is within the Republican Party. Yeah between Richard Nixon, who is pro-business, relatively established conservative uh, leader, and George Wallace, who has, as we see today, people playing to white populism, white working class fears, concerns about communist sympathizers yeah. in the country. Talk about that schism then. So the thing, so first of all, with Wallace, I mean, what's interesting about Wallace is that he runs as a third party candidate, but in many ways, he, he apes a lot of the messaging that you hear right. from Nixon. But here's what's fascinating about this. I mean, you couldn't have drawn this up any better. If you're writing a, a fiction about a campaign, you'd want to have, you know, to, to sort of define what happened to the Republican Party, you want to have a candidate on the far left and a candidate on the far right and a candidate in the middle. That's what you had. I mean, right. you literally had Nelson Rockefeller running the, you know, the, the namesake of the Rockefeller Republicans, the moderate wing of the Republican Party, New York governor. Then you have Ronald Reagan, the man who took the reins of the conservative movement after Goldwater loses in 64. Also, by the way, regional difference. You have the California governor versus the New York governor. And you have Nixon basically in the middle, you know, a shapeshifter, right. as he always would be his political career, sort of trying to marry these two wings of the party. And I think what's fascinating about this election is that you have Rockefeller basically running as sort of a technocratic, pragmatic, pro-civil rights, moderate Republican. And then you have Reagan with a sort of new conservative, anti-government conservative populism. And in a way, Republicans have a clear choice in this election between sort of which direction they want to go. And they choose Nixon, but Nixon very much leans in Reagan's direction, particularly on rhetoric. It's a fascinating thing. I mean, rhetorically on law and order, on basically turning his back on the African-American vote, which mm-hmm. you know, many moderates thought was a mistake. But I think Nixon recognized you know, 
unfortunately, but it was true, that it was to his benefit to basically write off the African-American vote and focus on winning white votes. The, uh, the tough talk on cultural values, the criticism of anti- anti-war protesters, all of that, that that Reagan really does in his governor's race in 66 and the Franklin Trail in 68 is what Nixon kind of adopts as he goes forward. But Wallace is the interesting example because Wallace is a guy who is a Democrat. He's a New Deal Democrat. Conservatives hate him because he basically supports expanding role of expanding government, just not for not for black people. And he runs a much more racist and much more crime focused and and values focused campaign, much more oriented toward white voters. And in a way, I see it is that Wallace provides the sort of the rhetorical direction for Republicans to go. Right. And one that Nixon completely adopts in his first term as president and in 72 he runs for re-election and Republicans adopt usually in a more subtle way than Wallace. I mean Wallace was a racist and a segregationist and and his events you know basically turned into riots and they were they were incredibly violent incredibly uncomfortable events to be at but he provides I think again like the roadmap for how you can win over white voters and the way that that Wallace does it and the way Republicans after 68 do it playing on white fears right. white fears about the civil rights movement white fears about crime white fears about all kinds of not not just by the way you know, violence, but things like what's the impact of integration on schools, on something like busing? What's the impact of integration on neighborhoods if you have to in, no longer have housing discrimination, you have to integrate your neighborhoods? And, and those were things that actually did affect white voters. I mean, they, I mean, they did affect white people. I mean, if your neighborhood was integrated, your power values are going to go down. Right. That was a reality. I mean, it was racist and it was wrong, but it was also a reality for a lot of people. If you don't want to bust your kids to another school, to a worse school possibly, then what Wallace is saying or what Republicans are saying resonates. So, you know, what Wallace does is I think really creates this this idea of white people are being sort of discriminated against by liberals and by the federal government and they need to they need to stand up for themselves in some sense. It sounds familiar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sounds familiar. And I think to me that's a straight line between Wallace and Trump. I mean, I see very much the rhetoric of Wallace, the anger that Wallace reflects, the uh, animosity toward people of color that he that his campaign reflects is one that I think that I think Trump embodies today. But I wanted to say one last thing. I mean, there's no question that, that, that Wallace was a racist. Many of his supporters were racist. But in the case of Wallace, you know, many of his supporters were poor whites with very little economic opportunity who felt threatened by the civil rights movement and felt threatened in a way that was legitimate. And for a lot of them, supporting Wallace was a way of sort of holding back what they felt was going to hurt them. I think that's also true for a lot of Trump supporters. I mean, the difference, of course, is that many Trump supporters don't face the same kind of mm-hmm. issues that Wallace supporters faced. And so I think in a way, the sort of cultural resentment toward the Democratic Party, toward people of color, toward government that Wallace kind of begins and Republicans pick up has become sort of almost a default position among Republicans today. Well, before we get to contemporary era on this podcast, we had Corey Shockey. She was talking about a great new edited volume she has on civil military relations. Hmm. In particular, we're talking about General Mike Flynn and General John Allen coming up not as first name individuals, but as retired generals speaking at political conventions. One of the most fascinating characters in this book and fascinating Cold War personalities of all is General Curtis LeMay. Curtis LeMay, yes. Tell us who Curtis LeMay is and how he becomes a vice presidential candidate. <laughs> so Curtis LeMay is the the Air Force general who was basically responsible for the firebombing of Japanese cities in World War II. And as he would later say, had the Japanese won, he probably would have been tried as a war criminal. This was a guy who, who truly was an evangelist when it came to the use of air power, but also nuclear weapons. So in 68, Wallace needs to pick a vice presidential candidate, and you know there's not a lot of great options people are run with him. He first looks at a guy named Happy Chandler, who's former oh, governor yeah. of Kentucky, former commissioner, commissioner, of baseball. Uh, commissioner of baseball. But it turns out that Chandler had integrated schools in Kentucky when he was governor, 
and integrated baseball, of course. Right. So this was immediately a red flag. So when the, when his name floated, Wallace supporters immediately you know recoiled in horror at the idea of a, an integrationist being being on the ticket. So that was dropped. They went with LeMay, thinking that would help Wallace among veterans. Mm-hmm. The, the problem again with LeMay was not a politician at all. And so at his inaugural press conference when they introduced him, which just came on October 3rd of 68, you know, Wallace's staff tells him over and over again, don't talk about nuclear weapons. Don't talk about it. It's not the issue here. Don't talk about it. First question is about nuclear weapons, and, you know, LeMay cannot help himself. And immediately he starts talking about the efficacy of nuclear weapons. And how if he was president, you know, he would consider their use and how the downsides of nuclear weapons are the phobia, as he put it. Right. That you'll have a nuclear weapons right. was overstated. In fact, if you look at like the lagoons in Bikini Atoll, I mean, the, the rats are bigger and the trees are bigger <laughs> and everything is better there because they dropped a nuclear bomb. I mean, it was an insane moment. And the funniest thing about this, I think, was reading some of the, um, the histories of Wallace's A's as this is going on. Wallace is not a man often speechless, and he was kind of speechless at this moment watching LeMay self-destruct. And there's a great quote I have from one of Wallace's aides where he says, he looked over at Wallace at one point as LeMay was talking, and he said, I'd never seen a person angrier in my entire life than Wallace at that exact moment. But but basically, you know, LeMay kind of self-destructs and in many ways sort of self-destructs the, the whole Wallace campaign. Because I think for a lot of people, you know, look, third-party candidates usually fade in their support, and Wallace was in the low 20s. Right in late September, early October, which is extraordinary. Was he on all the ballots? He was. He got to, he got on all the ballots, yeah. And this moment, I think, really kind of hurt him pretty pretty significantly. It's also true that, again, I mean, third-party support fades, but also the uh, labor movement went pretty heavily against Wallace because in Alabama, you know, Alabama, southern states in general are not great for, for unions, mm-hmm. and Alabama was no different. And so the labor, and labor was where, I mean, union voters was where Wallace was being very well, white working class uh, labor voters or union voters. And that's where they put up the big push, and I think a lot of his support fell off. And he ended up 13% of the vote, right. which is still pretty significant, but isn't, uh, isn't you know, low 20s. Your final chapter, which is properly titled, It's Never Stopped Being 1968, <laughs> you highlight some of the legacies of that campaign that has stretched into today, you mentioned some of them, but but share some of those with the listeners. I mean, I think, you know, to me, there's two main things. I mean, I think one is that 68 creates this identity of the two parties. I mean, I think it moves Republicans more to the right. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes them more the defender of, sort of traditional values. It makes them more, frankly, the white party in America. And then Democrats move more to the left and become sort of seen as the party of minorities and persons of color. And, you know, it's in, in 60, Nixon gets 33%, 32% of the black vote. I think Eisenhower got 40-plus percent in 56. By 64, it's less than 10%. Right. By 68, that's mainly because of civil rights and the fact that Johnson supported and Goldwater opposed the Civil Rights Act. But in 68, those numbers continue. And, and basically up until every election since then, you know, African Americans vote overwhelmingly for for Democrats. And that's created this huge racial divide between the two parties, one that, that had for a long time benefited Republicans and now is sort of not benefiting them as much. So that's, the, I mean, I think one of the big legacies is the identity of the two parties becomes more more defined. Parties become a bit more homogenous in mm-hmm. their ideological views. And that creates more polarization and division in, in, in American politics. The other thing is that, you know, this is sort of, the, to me, the, the sort of the great story of 68 and the really tragedy of 68 is that the idea that comes out of 68 and is the reigning narrative is one of conservative anti-government populism. Anti-government attitudes spike after 68. And this isn't just because of what happened at the election. It's Watergate. It's Vietnam. Mm-hmm. It's the civil rights movement. It's all the things that caused white Americans who had been supportive of government spending and government programs to view this suddenly, not with horror, but certainly with skepticism. Right. And to view any expansion of government as one that hurt them. 
right? So a lot of what comes out of 68 is that the civil rights movement is seen as, a, as something that's pushed by politicians in Washington, and it's something that, that doesn't benefit white Americans. And so it creates this sort of, I think, greater anti-government attitude. So you have this anti-government sense, not just among Republicans, but also among Democrats. You know, it doesn't take very long for Democrats to pick it up as well. But at the same time, people aren't actually anti-government in the specifics. They don't like the abstract right. idea of big government, but they like Social Security, they like Medicare, they like school spending, transportation spending, environmental protection, regulate. They like a lot of stuff government does. They like pretty much everything government does. They just don't like to make government any bigger because they think that you make government bigger, it's going to hurt them. The Obamacare debate is a great example of this because the group that was most opposed to Obamacare in 2009, 2010, were old people. Why? Because they saw this as a threat to their Medicare. Mm-hmm. So you have this sort of like culture of parochialism that everything is seen as, you know, I have mine, I paid my taxes, I get this, I don't want anything to affect that. So if you increase size government or give, you know, benefits to some other group, that means I'm going to get hurt by that. And so it, it basically, in my view, makes government dysfunctional and paralyzes the ability to really do anything to expand the social safety net, to really help working class Americans. And that's been going on, I think, you know, 30, 40 years now. And that, that dysfunction is fed and cultivated by this kind of knee-jerk anti-government attitude mm-hmm. that you see mainly on the right, but, but really across the political spectrum. So th- what it does is it's created this incredible paralysis in American politics, both, both the polarization between the two parties, but also this, this notion that you can't expand government anyway, it's gonna hurt people, hurt, hurt me. So that's kind of where we are today, this incredible divided electorate, but also this just paralyzed federal government. I mean, right. if you think of the last six years, I mean, the story that, that I think is maybe the most important one we don't talk about enough is how paralyzed our governing institutions have become. Congress is, doesn't do anything, right? I mean, Congress has passed fewer bills, I think, in the last you know, two or three Congresses than ever before in U.S. Mm-hmm. history. So how that ends breaks, that's kind of what we'll see maybe after November 8th. And it really goes to show from a historical perspective how these trends are based upon contingencies. Like if Johnson had decided to keep running, if Robert Kennedy had not been assassinated, if the United States had not made a commitment in the early 1960s to the defense of South Vietnam. If Kennedy doesn't get shot in 63 and remains right. president and doesn't escalate in Vietnam the way that Johnson does. I mean, when you write a book like this, this is the stuff that kind of keeps you up at night. When you think about the contingencies and the fact that things could have gone in a different direction. And, and you know, if Sirhan Sirhan shoots six inches to the left, yeah. and Kennedy, I don't think Kennedy, Kennedy's not the nominee in 68, but I think if Kennedy lives, I think it puts more pressure on Johnson to allow his vice president, Humphrey, becomes the nominee, to separate himself from Johnson on the war, which he doesn't do until late right. September. He does it earlier. Maybe he wins. Maybe he's the VP for Humphrey, which I think would have caused Humphrey to win. I mean, there's so many contingencies and, and an election that was half a million votes between the two candidates. Right, right. And in which you can, I think it's, I have a number in the book, it's something like 60,000 votes that went to Nixon, go to Humphrey in, in, in several of the states, goes to the House, and Humphrey then wins, wins the presidency there. So yeah, it is almost traumatic <laughs> to read about you know, this stuff and to think about, man, it, it could have gone differently, and we live in a very different country if it had. Well, talking about almost traumatic, we're 24 days away from... <laughs> almost traumatic. <laughs> perspective, perspective trauma and division in the United States. You've been a very close watcher and commentator on this presidential campaign. You've been to a lot of rallies. You speak to people on the campaigns. You churn out two columns a week at three. least. Three. Three. <laughs> which you can see at bostonglobe.com. We could talk forever about the last 15 months, but just give me your top line impressions of the campaign. 
I mean, this camp. Look, it, oh gosh, this this has been just an awful campaign in so many ways, and and just an awful commentary on modern American politics. And you know, I, my comment on what I about this week is that this is no longer a race between Trump and Clinton. I mean, this literally is a race between democracy and, and illiberalism. That's what you're voting on in, in November, because ultimately, Trump is, you know, we know all the terrible things about Trump, but I think right. the thing about Trump that should alarm people the most is that he's not a Democrat. And I don't mean a Democrat, member of the Democratic Party, I mean he's not a Democrat in the small sense of D. small d Democrat, yeah. exactly. He's not somebody who believes in democracy, understands democracy, understands political norms that guide our democracy. He's somebody who would just burn the whole thing down, you know, I, I think would, would govern in a way that would that would undermine the institutions of our government and already are undermining the institutions of their government. I mean, you have a guy running around with the election that's going to be rigged 24 days out. I mean, he's questioning the legitimacy of a, of a democratic election. That's never happened before in this country. It's astounding to mm-hmm. see this. And not just the fact that he's a racist, that he's a misogynist, that he's a sexual predator, that he's a demagogue, that he's utterly unqualified to be president of the United States. You know, put all that aside. Right. I mean, he is literally an authoritarian minded, you know, individual who would undermine our democracy. So to me, you know, that's an unusual election, mm-hmm. uh, to say the least, because elections in America usually are about two very different visions of government. They're about, you know, mobilizing uh, partisans on behalf of a candidate. They're about finding the issues that really animate voters. And that isn't happening this year. I mean, this election is not about policy. It's about personality. Right. And I'll tell you, you talk to voters and, you know, and sometimes talk about policy, but very, very rarely, especially Republican voters, they don't care about policy at all. They talk about that they think Hillary Clinton's a liar and immoral and ethical and what have you, and she should be in jail. They talk about Trump as he's the one person who can save the country and he can bring his business acumen to Washington, and, and they, don't, they don't care about policy. In fact, in many cases, they disagree with Trump on key policy issues. Mm-hmm. They don't agree with him. In a great, they, I've, I've met one voter who says they support deporting all 11 million illegal immigrants, which, of course, Trump does support. I don't think I've met one voter who supports the Muslim ban. They all codify it and say, oh, it doesn't mean it, or it's just temporary. I mean, th- th- there is an element there where it's about the fact that he says he wants to ban all Muslims right. that's more actually important to them than, than he actually would do it. Well, for, well, from your perspective as a historian, is the underlying causes and conditions which lend support to those statements— are those going to be enduring, or do you think they're just, again, contingent on this particular no, individual? No, I think, I think. look, I mean, I think there's a straight line between between Wallace and 68 and the kind of campaign slogans have run for 40-something years and today. I mean, the thing about Trump that, that I find sort of amusing is this idea that somehow he came out of the ether. I always mention this point about that, look, Trump is a racist and he's a demagogue and he's a xenophobe, but all of the Republicans ran on racist, nativist, xenophobic platforms uh, in the primary, all of them wanted to didn't mm-hmm. want to pass citizenship. Many of them wanted to deport immigrants. All of them wanted to strengthen border security. All of them wanted to ban Syrian Muslims entering the U.S. Trump just went further and said he wanted to ban all Muslims. But the, the kind of nativist and racist dog whistles Republicans have used for decades. I mean, Trump's just different because he doesn't use a dog whistle. He just says it outright. Right. But you know what I found sort of interesting and, and sort of amusing was that I was at this event in, in Pennsylvania a couple of days ago, and Trump said. You know, he told all of his supporters, this was in Wilkes-Barre, which is about a couple hours north of Philadelphia, he said, they're going to steal the election. Mm-hmm. You have to go down to Philadelphia, and mm-hmm. you know who. And he's talking about black people. He's saying right. black people are going to steal the election in Philadelphia from you, which is, a, I mean, utterly untrue and a complete racist a- attack. But, I mean, how many years Republicans, and they're doing it now, they're doing it in, your, in where you came from, Wisconsin. They're, they're the voter fraud stuff, trying to limit 
franchise yeah. of black voters claiming, you know, that there's this vast conspiracy to voter fraud and usually focused on African-Americans. So he just sort of brings it more to the he's more literal. He brings it more to the to the uh, there's, no, there's no there's no subtlety or nuance about the way Trump approaches issues. But these are all issues we're going to run on for, for a long time. Right. So and in many ways, Trump was pushing as an open door. People who were trained, I think, to view persons of color with with uh, with skepticism, to view liberals with skepticism, to view Democrats with skepticism, to view them as illegitimate somehow. All of this is, I think, part of the unfortunately Republican DNA going back decades. There's a piece I saw today about something in praise of George H.W. Bush because he ran a, a more of a sort of kinder, gentler candidate in '88. I mean, George H.W. Bush in '88 ran a racist, very openly racist platform. Going after Willie Horton and attack and and, and accusing his opponent of being un- un-American, unpatriotic because mm-hmm. he didn't, didn't didn't sign some bill about the pledge of allegiance mm-hmm. with the flag factories. Right, right, right. I mean, so this is something that goes back. Ronald Reagan, you know, Ronald Reagan announces candidacy in Philadelphia, Mississippi where three civil rights workers had been murdered in 1965 or 64. He uh, talked about states' rights, which is, you know, code to Southern uh, voters about keeping the federal government out of their business. So this is this has a long history, going back to 68, but through Reagan and Bush and Republican politicians, you know, on the presidential level and the state and local level for, for years. And so to me, Trump is just a logical conclusion of that kind of scorched earth, divisive politics that we've been seeing in this country for a long time. And can we get a prediction for you on winner and electoral count? Electoral count, I wouldn't say. I mean, I, I mean I've mean, i been saying since, I mean, for a year now that Clinton's going to win. Ever since I became convinced Trump would be the nominee, I was sure she would win. I'm sure she'll win by a lot. At this point, I wouldn't be surprised if she wins with double digits. I would expect high 300s for electoral count. I mean, wow. she'll win all the states Obama won. Maybe not Iowa. That's the only place I see maybe she might lose, but, but probably... Georgia, Arizona, very, very real possibilities. I, I just think, you know, I think you haven't even seen the bottom yet for Trump. I think you'll see more decline in support between now and Election Day. I think you'll see him do more things that will cause that decline to, to go forward. I think the ground game difference is so significant uh, in that Trump has no ground game. And that's, you know, one or two points of a diff- difference right there. I think in the end, you know, she wins by a lot. Now, question that does Democrats take the House and Senate? That really, mm-hmm. to me, is the most important and most interesting question. And that I think Senate, probably House, it's hard to say. Probably not, but it's hard to say. Well, stay tuned. We'll, we'll see that. So last question we ask everybody, if you were speaking to the younger version of you, <laughs> what would you tell an aspiring political columnist, political analyst, speechwriter? What would you tell them? Uh, people ask me all the time, and it's hard because journalism is not a great field to be in right now. But I would say uh, if you're good at it and, you, and you're passionate about it, then you should just do it. And I mean, do it, you should write all the time. I mean, I write all the time. Before I got this gig at the Globe, I wrote all the time. I was pitching all the time. You know, the more you write, the better you get at this stuff. And the better you get at it, the more people notice, and they ask you to write for them, and they take your pitches, or they give you jobs as columnists, or or opinion writers, or reporters, or what have you. And so I think it's a tough slog to be mm-hmm. a, a writer. And I, and I began doing what I'm doing now when I was a little older, and I was married, and it was a little harder to sort of, you know, take the usual you know, not great wages you get when you're a, sure. when you're a, when you're opinion columnist. So start young. I definitely, if I was telling myself 20 years ago, I'd say start now as opposed to waiting uh, to do this. But I think it's not easy, and not everyone's going to kind of get that opportunity to, to do it. But if you're good at it and you love it, you know, you just have to kind of plug away. That's that's the best advice that I can give. Take that advice to heart, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I'd like to thank Michael Cohen for joining us again today. 
Check out his new book, American Maelstrom, The 1968 Election and the Politics of Division.